0: The scripture reading comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 27. Okay, the first three verses. Let's focus our minds off of Boba onto the Bible now, the scripture reading. As we continue this series, I'll read it for us. And when it was decided that we, uh, we again, Apostle Paul and Dr. Luke, probably his closest friend, we should set sail for Italy. Uh, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of uh, Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friend's And be cared for. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we learned and worshiped Jesus Christ, the best of friends. He sticks closer than a brother who forgives forever. And really no greater love, no greater love than him, the son of God, laying down his life for his friends. What could possibly be greater, I don't know of one, than to have a friend in Jesus, the best of friends? How sweet, how real, how continual his friendship is for someone like me. The world may ask, well, good for you, great for you, great for you Christian people. You believe that Jesus is the best of friends and he's your friend. So what? Well, the best of friends turns his people into better friends. If you have Christ Jesus as the best of friends, you become a better friend like him. Three things today as we go through this kind of now friendship series within the book of Acts. This is just part one. Personal promise of friendship. Second, personal fouls get in the way of friendships. Last one, the personal friend. Okay, personal promise, second, personal fouls. Last but not least, the personal friend for who, for who? All right, a personal promise. Acts chapter 23, once again, we heard of this where Apostle Paul was literally about to be torn apart. A mob was so incensed and divided against the Apostle Paul, it reads they're about to tear him apart. And the tribune had to order, court-ordered military soldiers to rescue and save the life of Paul. Well, that following night, it reads in verses 10 and 11 of Acts 23. The Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me. Not quite sure if I'll ever get over that phrase. The following night, possibly the scariest, loneliest, darkest Most traumatized night, Luke records the Lord stood by Paul. There is none other, there's no one better than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's Acts 23. Now, Acts 27 is a long and intriguing chapter. Truth be told. Paul is setting sail toward Rome in Italy because that has been his holy ambition ever since he was converted and called by Jesus Christ to spread the gospel. Paul's ambition in life is to spread the gospel of Jesus as far as he could. And Rome was the end of the world to him. And if you read Acts 27, if you should read Acts 27 all in one sitting, it may seem unnecessary. little mundane, even boring at first. But please do read it. The Bible are riches. It is always offering riches of gold. And the more you read it, at least you will notice, I don't know how you can read the Bible and think this is man-made. This does not read like myths or fantasies or fairy tales or allegories. Dr. Luke, he had vast and specific knowledge well beyond medical science. He records too many specific names, times, locations, distances, depths, details, the very terminology for sailors. Read it. It reads like real life. Well, somewhere in verse 10, Apostle Paul uh, warns the centurion, the captain, and the crew of the ship, uh, we shouldn't go. And I can't even make this up. They're stationed at the port called Fair Havens. Fair Havens. You know, you shouldn't leave. It's like Hawaii. Don't leave that place. Paul warns, uh, if we leave now, commentators would say there was a lot of common sense mixed into this. The worst time of year. There were prevailing dangerous winds already that made it difficult for them to even arrive at Fair Havens. Paul warns, if we leave, there will be much loss. Injury, we might even lose our very lives. But the owner of the ship and the centurion decide we must go because there's business to be done. This is a ship that was carrying grain or corn all the way from Alexandria, Egypt, to Rome, Italy. Business must be done. Now, for the next 30 verses or so, it vividly described a most violent storm. I would imagine like hurricane force winds. And this storm so rocks and tosses this ship full of 276 passengers like a toy. It's just a toy westward across the Mediterranean Sea. And do you know how long the storm lasted? Up to two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, I get a little nauseous and seasick just even thinking about it. Two weeks trapped upon a ship, ravaged by a storm. And in verse 20, which I'll just read for us, midway through, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, (laughs) and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Within the two-week storm, the most Life or death, harrowing ordeal. Luke records, we couldn't see the sun. We never saw the moon. We couldn't see the lights. We couldn't see the sky. They had no idea where they were. They had no devices for navigation. And then he says, with by trade, probably sailors, sailors. Probably been doing it for a vocation. They've been doing it for a living. They had the strongest stomachs, don't you know? Some of the toughest personalities and people out there. I don't know if you've ever gone out on a ship for that long. Luke says, all hope. Even for them, all hope on the entire ship was lost and abandoned. You know, this ship, they had tried everything they can do to survive. Some of the details that Luke records is they pulled up the lifeboat to keep it from flooding, you know. They, they, they tied ropes around the, the bow of the ship to fasten it so that it would not splinter apart. Then the other detail is they just started throwing all the cargo, maybe the grain and all the equipment overboard so that they could just survive. And then we pick up now here in verses 21 to 25. It reads, Since they had been without food for a long time, not only could they not see the skies, Not only there was no lights, there was no hope of navigation. They could not eat. Of course you couldn't eat when you're panicking to death, when you're sick to death. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) You should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. as I have been told. Who on the ship rises to calm and comfort grizzled sailors? Who among all the captains, centurion, and crew can rise and stand to calm and comfort people who are certain they're about to die? Only the apostle Paul. But Why? Paul said it, this very night, an angel of God stood by me and an angel calmed and comforted me. Oh, friends, do you know how much the world needs a calming, comforting voice? Do you know how much the world is dying and breaking Over the panic and dread of life. Apostle Paul rises to say. Don't fear. Do not fear. For an angel of God assured me. No life will be lost. Because he has to complete his mission. He's going to get to Rome. God is going to finish his mission through Paul. Well in Acts chapter 23. Remember. Remember. The Lord Jesus Christ himself stood by Paul the following night. In Acts chapter 27, who stood by Paul? Now an angel. An angel of God was sent to stand by and to soothe Paul. Either will do for me. I don't know about you. Either will do. Either the Lord himself or an angel. That will do for me. I'm not into angelology. I'm not into demonology. I'm not an expert except what the Bible may reveal to me. However, nothing in the Bible tells me that angels or demons are not as active and real and present right now, right here in this place. And I would tell you all kinds of problems. I'm talking about real problems here. Psychological, emotional, relational, even financial and spiritual and physical. All kinds of problems erupt when you and I read a story like this. And of course, you just dismiss it and said, oh, must be nice for them. So great for Paul that God showed up to him and an angel was sent to him. Good for him. Must be nice. Oh, my friends, oh, you and I have such a, such little, little faith. Do you not know that Jesus himself made a personal promise to every believer and follower that he would stand by you all your days? Look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 20, verses 18 through 20. Right now, we think about Pastor Jimmy Prairie and Corin and Daniel D K visiting David and Susanna Nam in Taiwan because they're carrying out this great commission. But I want you to notice the last verse, the personal promise. Here's the great commission: Jesus came and said to them, His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold. I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a personal promise from Jesus himself. And he never breaks it. He never breaks it. The personal promise. Now today we've got to deconstruct friendship a little bit. We have to deconstruct it in order to construct, to reconstruct a better and biblical model of it. But second, as we move on here, to deconstruct it, some personal fouls. These are things, just some common things that get in the way or ruin or prevent, or sever friendships, personal fouls. First, I'd call it one-dimensional, one-dimensional, OK? Some of you insist on keeping it surface level. Let's be honest. There's so many layers about you. You want to keep it comfortable. You want to keep it superficial. I mean, it's the same topics every time you meet. Never gets beyond that. It's going to be hard to create and keep friendships. How about digital communication? Digital connection? Oh, enormously useful. I mean, how do we get through COVID without that? Even for our Sunday worship, we did it online. Thank God for it. But... There's multiple levels missing over digital connection, like body language, like real-time cues, extended and deep understanding, the ability to exchange thoughts and ideas, questions. I mean, that real mutual exchange, unhurried. Nuance, all your senses are engaged. Digital connection, Great, but it's limited. It keeps you distant still. I mean, think about again what Jesus does for his church for you and me. He does not stay distant or remote. It's helpful, it's useful, but that's not what he's in it for. With his friends, Jesus wants to show up in person. And that is why every end of the month, when we do communion or Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. You do it when you show up in person because Jesus says, by my spirit, I'll show up in person to meet with you. One-dimensional gets in the way of good friendships. Here's a second foul, one-way street, a one-way street. One-way street is where one person says, you know, you really need to pay more attention to me and call and text me and remember me and you got to remember all my love languages and your timing has to be right and your manner has to be right i hope you can fulfill my expectations my demands all my needs but a one-way street also can be wholly unreasonable unrealistic in its expectations and if you are all about a one-way street One of the signs of a one-way street is it's a monologue. It's a monologue. You dominate the conversation. The other person can't even get a word in. You're the opposite of what Apostle James says. You are quick to speak and slow to listen. A one-way street at some point may prove to be too draining for the other person. A one-way street where you have unreasonable expectations may prove to be unsafe for the other person because the other person no longer wants to try because the other person always feels like they're a failure. They can never meet up to your standards. Oh, again, friends, on the other side of a two-way street, never a one-way street, lies friendship personal foul number one, one one-dimensional, personal foul number two, a one-way street, a third personal foul. I'm going to call it oblivion, okay? You're not aware. You're not aware, okay? A lot of guys, a lot of dudes, including myself at a certain age, you're just not aware. That's okay for some time, but hopefully awareness comes. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 calls out, if you are inconsiderate, you are rude, and you are selfish in your behavior, that is unloving. Translation, going to be very difficult to make and keep good friends. The Proverbs give us concrete examples of oblivion. Oblivion, this is foul number three. How about the wrong time? Wrong time in the Proverbs. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Proverbs 27 verse 14. Oh, my wife and I, especially my wife, she adores infant babies. She is the baby whisperer along with my daughters. They are like a mom and they're really good with babies. But will we want to have another one right now 24-7? No way. Children, babies wake up at a certain time and they're gonna greet you with all kinds of emotions, a kind of volume that is not suitable to that time of the night or the time of the morning. Friends are those who are sensitive to, accommodate, and match the moment. They don't come happy-go-lucky at a funeral. They don't come to a party and then kill joy. They rejoice with those who rejoice. They weep with those who weep. The right time, appropriate time, they know the seasons. Proverbs 25 verse 20 reads, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Oblivion, oblivion. But we can all grow in awareness about time. How about the wrong place, the wrong place? Proverbs 25, verse 17 reads this. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. It hate you. Oh, that's pretty strong language there. You came over and then they end up hating you. What? How is that possible? Well, you came over. You didn't tell the other person you're coming over. You keep coming over. And again, you didn't tell the other person you keep coming over. And then when you came over, the father, the husband says something like, Oh, I've had a really long week. (laughs) It's been really tough. And then his wife is actually already asleep, went up to bed and said, Good night. You guys take care of yourself. Because she has to get up early the next morning. And they've got two infant children. But you know this small group. This lovely wonderful small group. You know just it's like midnight now. And it's 1230 and it's 1am. And they just won't leave. They just keep staying there at your house. An example from the Proverbs you know. Where you outstay your stay. Where you may not know your place. Where if you don't respect. Privacy of boundaries, or maybe some confidentialities, you might be having a really difficult time in becoming a better friend. You know, on the receiving end, okay, here's on the receiving end. Healthy boundaries are meant to allow and accept what is good, and to keep what is bad or evil out. Sadly, those who have been violated or abused tend to do the reverse to be a loving person never means you should blur or allow your boundaries to be violated and broken to be taken advantage of bullied or abused people all the time sometimes will tell me and other pastors because they're so stressed out about certain people crossing their boundaries you know they're Wrong time or wrong place. And what I would like to tell you is you can't control what other people may do in terms of crossing time and space and its consequences. You can't control what other people continue to do. Which means it may end up that they lose a close friend like you. You'll be cordial. You'll be at peace. But you may never be as close. But what you can do is to change And guard the boundaries around your exposure to that. Exposure to that. Now my friends, as you listen to this, be very careful. Wisdom literature and Proverbs is not cookie cutter. It's not general. It doesn't universally apply to all times and all situations. You must be wise at the right time of how this applies to it. At the right place of how these verses apply to it. But nevertheless... There are personal fouls when you are oblivious, oblivious to time and place. Last thing, the most usual culprit, the most popular, common, all right, killer for all relationships, it's wrong words. Wrong words. There's the cynic or the critic. Now, good constructive critiques or criticism are most needed, and welcomed. But I'm talking about a hyper habitual critic, a person who only finds and looks for and amplifies faults. Hmm? Like the DNA, the MO is that person will Only and always look for and find and amplify and spread false. These are sins of gossip, sins of slander. It's ruinous. A second type of wrong words. Careless, careless. You're not careful. You're not contextual. You're not wise. And again, you're not considerate of other people outside of you. And if you don't care about the words you use or the words you just unleash, you don't care about if you regularly misreport or leak or mislead or spin or incite or maybe even provoke division and hate. People should not care listening to you or care to be around you at some point. At some point. These are Careless words. We have to be very careful with words. Oh, your pastor who speaks and uses words for a living, I'm supposed to preach. One of the greatest things God is humbling me about for me to apologize or repent of is how I have used my words outside of this pulpit. You know, my wife, Sunny, has reminded me on more than one occasion, Harold, you're attractive sometimes until you open your mouth. You're attractive sometimes until you open your mouth. That was meant to be a joke, but some of you took it way too seriously there. (laughs) And those are incredibly truthful, caring trusting and loving words from my wife wrong words a cynic a critic careless last thing compulsive compulsive Um, compulsive uh, you're kind of true half true almost true or sometimes nothing true (laughs) which is in other words A lie. You do know almost true is a lie. Right? Almost true is actually not true. And this creates all kinds of misunderstandings, maybe confusion and divides. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 18 reads this. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. I don't know who wants to be friends with a war club, a sword, or, or, or an arrow. James, Apostle James warns, warns that the, 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 the words of our mouth, our tongues, is an untamed evil. It's restless, and it could create forest fires. There's out of control, wild, ravaging fires. Friendship fouls, personal fouls. One-dimensional, one-way street, oblivion. Last but not least, obstinate. Obstinate. Here's all I mean by this. Be very wary of a person who never apologizes. Who never owns it. Who never acknowledges any wrong. Who knows no sin. That's obstinate. Obstinate. I'm not quite sure if a friendship is possible there. Now these are some biblical diagnoses of personal fouls but which do you resemble most which do I resemble most hey who here has not overreacted who here has not been overly emotional who here has never been passive-aggressive who here has never been cowardly when you are participating in slander and gossip spreading. Who here has not violated and crossed boundaries? Who here has not been careless? Who here has never lied? Lied, just straight up lied. The kinds of words and time and space that we use and violate oftentimes cause more damage relationally, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually than any physical injury could. Who here is faultless? Who here is without a foul? And that's why we have to get to a personal friend. A personal friend for who? For who? Who did he come for? You know, in that really well-known hymn, Oh, For a Thousand Tongues to Sing... One verse, it reads this. His blood can make the foulest clean. Huh. Evidently, Jesus only came for the foulest. He bled and died only for the worst. He came for the foulest? Personal friend for who? Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, evidently Jesus was hanging out with people who eat way too much, who drink way too much. He was known by public reputation as a friend of tax collectors. Do you know what tax collectors were in Jesus' day? They're the money launderers. They're the ones who want to make money at any cost. They'll sell you out. They're a cheater. They're a fraud. They lie. They're your own countrymen, a fellow Jew who would make way more profit in living off of other Jews. And yet, these tax collectors and sinners, for some reason, when Jesus came into their presence... And would offer his friendship they so welcomed it they relished it they reciprocated it it became a life-giving and life-changing reality for the tax collectors and sinners he became a friend for them and Jesus is mocked here in this verse is he not for hanging out and making friends with these kinds of people. You know why? Because Jesus came to take upon the reputation, the record, the shame, the penalties, and all the punishment of these very people, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, But now here we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50. Jesus said to him, who's him? This is Judas Iscariot. The one who betrayed Jesus for personal monetary gain. Jesus said to Judas, friend. Oh, he calls him a friend. He offers friendship. He wants friendship. Do what you came to do. Then they, the mob, the authorities, came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Friendship is offered to Judas, but it is denied. Judas is called to be a friend of Jesus, but Judas never needed that. He never accepted that. He never welcomed it. He was only using Jesus for personal gain. Why not? Oh, so listen to now as we close. What makes a difference? What makes the difference? Why did... Some, like tax collectors and sinners, welcome and relish and reciprocate and have their lives utterly changed by friendship with Jesus, whereas some, like Judas, would only deny and reject and only use him for it. And it's very simple, but it's really hard to explain. It's very simple. But it captures a spiritual divide. It's a spiritual chasm. And it's so vast. It's so deep. It's so infinitely wide. Nobody in this room will cross it. Nobody in this room will actually bridge that gap. Between those who are befriended by Jesus. And then those who reject Jesus. But as one of your pastors, as best as I could put it, I'll put it this way. There's some people in this room who really need saving. They need to be saved from themselves and from their own sin. Like you really do. You see it, you sense it, you feel it. And you know you can't save yourself. You know, you're like the sailors. On board that ship, being rocked by a hurricane. And you are crying out at your wits' end. You haven't eaten for weeks. You haven't seen the skies. You are panicking and despairing because all you know is that you are going to die. So you cry out for salvation. There are some who really need to be saved from themselves. And from their sin. And then there's many people like Judas Iscariot. Who are in love with themselves. You're just really in love with yourself. You're still in love with yourself. In fact, you have a hard time believing how much more you should love yourself. That's the best way I could put it. That's the best way I could put it. You know, when you look around the world and you hear Bible stories, you're like, hmm, that's nice. But certainly I'm not as weak and desperate like these other people. I'm more a saint than a sinner. I'm more fair and just and good than foul. Certainly someone doesn't have to come and save someone like me. And I tell you, dear friend, That is self-righteousness. That is antichrist. And it is the unforgivable sin. The one sin Jesus really can't take care of. The one attitude. The one spirit. The one lifestyle. The one worldview. That Jesus did not come to live and die and rise for is the spirit that says i can do it oh i can do it let me try because i've done so well in all the other areas of my life oh my friends for sinful people jesus will do the loving the saving the helping and the keeping and the befriending and you will always find that from people who really needed to be saved and then they are saved and befriended by someone like Jesus, the joy, the relief, the peace, the singing, the serving, the witnessing, the transformation of life will be somewhat inexplicable. For really sinful, needing-to-be-saved types, those who are saved by this Jesus They will be praying significantly. It's a pattern of their life because praying is admitting I cannot solve or save myself in all areas of life. Therefore, I bend the knee, I bow my head, and I pray to him. Oh, but for the self-righteous, as long as you're in love with yourself, as long as I'm in love with myself, we're just going to keep trying. Go out there and conquer the world. Make sure you can make up for your sin. Be a better person. You can do it. You can do it. Can you really do it? Oh, why did Jesus Christ come down to be the best of friends for sinners? Here, we need to learn to pray this. Charles Spurgeon, and I know Spurgeon must have prayed this many, many, many times. Charles Spurgeon, this final prayer. You pray this with me as we close in worship. You did not even promise that you would love him. For you had such a faithless heart. You asked him to make you love him. That was the most you could do. You asked that he would make you love him. For that was the most you could do. This is the only way you become a friend of Jesus. Is he the only way you become a convert? Is he the only way you become a child of God? Is he the only way you become a Christian person? Because the only way you come to Christ is by what he can do for you, not what you can do for him. It's only by grace. Only by grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. Father, for this word, we thank you for your spirit. And I pray, oh God, that your very spirit now would impress. Your very message, your own person in all your work upon our hearts, our minds, and our souls as we respond to you. Lord, receive all the glory. I pray, oh God, you would save some, add to our joy, and transform us, change us again and again and again, more into the image of the one who is the best of friends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.